Chapter Five of Popular History of Ireland, Book Nine by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Five, the Catholic Confederation, its civil government and military establishment. How a tumultuous insurrection grew into a national organization, with a senate, executive, treasury, army, ships, and diplomacy, we are now to describe. It may, however, be assumed throughout the narrative that the success of the new Confederacy was quite as much to be attributed to the perverse policy of its enemies as to the counsels of its best leaders. The rising in the Midlands and Munster counties, and the formal adhesion of the Lords of the Pale, were two of the principal steps towards the end. A third was taken by the bishops of the province of Armagh, assembled in provincial synod at Kells, on the 22nd of March, 1642, where, with the exception of Dees of Meath, they unanimously pronounced the war just and lawful. After solemnly condemning all acts of private vengeance, and all those who usurped other men's estates, this provincial meeting invited a national synod to meet at Kilkenny on the tenth day of May following. On that day, accordingly, all the prelates then in the country, with the exception of Bishop Dees, met at Kilkenny. There were present O'Reilly, Archbishop of Armagh, Butler, Archbishop of Cashel, O'Keeley, Archbishop of Tuam, David Roth, the Venerable Bishop of Ossory, the Bishops of Clonfort, Elphin, Waterford, Lismore, Kildare, and Down and Connor, the Proctors of Dublin, Limerick, and Killaloe, with sixteen other dignitaries and heads of religious orders, in all twenty-nine prelates and superiors, or their representatives. The most remarkable attendants were, considering the circumstances of their province, the prelates of Connaught. Strafford's reign of terror was still painfully remembered west of the Shannon, and the immense family influence of Ulrich Burke, then Earl, and afterwards Marquis of Clanricard, was exerted to prevent the adhesion of the western population to the Confederacy. But the zeal of the Archbishop of Tom, and the violence of the Governor of Galway, Sir Francis Willoughby, proved more than a counterpoise for the authority of Clanricard, and the recollection of Strafford. Connaught, though the last to come into the Confederation, was also the last to abandon it. The Synod of Kilkenny proceeded with the utmost solemnity and anxiety to consider the circumstances of their own and the neighbouring kingdoms. No equal number of men could have been found in Ireland at that day, with an equal amount of knowledge of foreign and domestic politics. Many of them had spent years upon the continent, while the French Huguenots had held their one hundred cautionary towns, and leagues and associations were the ordinary instruments of popular resistance in the Netherlands and Germany. Nor were the events transpiring in the neighbouring island unknown or unweighed by that grave assembly. The true meaning and intent of the Scottish and English insurrections were by this time apparent to every one. The previous months had been especially fertile in events, calculated to rouse their most serious apprehensions. In March the king fled from London to York. In April the gates of Hull were shut in his face by Hotham, its governor, and in May the long Parliament voted a levy of sixteen thousand without the royal authority. The Earl of Warwick had been appointed to the parliamentary commander of the fleet, and the Earl of Essex, their Lord General, with Cromwell as one of his captains. From that hour it was evident the sword alone could decide between Charles and his subjects. In Scotland, too, events were occurring in which Irish Catholics were vitally interested. The contest for the leadership of the Scottish Royalists between the Marquises of Hamilton and Montrose had occupied the early months of the year, and given their enemies of the Kirk and the Assembly full time to carry on their correspondence with the English Puritans. In April, 
all parties in Scotland agreed in dispatching a force of twenty-five hundred men, under the memorable Major Monroe, for the protection of the Scottish settlers in Ulster. On the fifteenth of that month this officer landed at Carrickfergus, which was given up to him by agreement, with the royalist Colonel Chichester. The fortress, which was by much the strongest in that quarter, continued for six years the headquarters of the Scottish general, with whom we shall have occasion to meet again. The state of Anglo-Irish affairs was for some months one of disorganization and confusion. In January and February the king had been frequently induced to denounce by proclamation his Irish rebels. He had offered the Parliament to lead their reinforcements in person, had urged the sending of arms and men, and had repeatedly declared that he would never consent to tolerate popery in that country. He had failed to satisfy his enemies, by these profuse professions had dishonoured himself, and disgusted many who were far from being hostile to his person or family. Parsons and Borlase were still continued in the government, and Coote was entrusted by them, on all possible occasions, with a command distinct from that of Ormond. Having proclaimed the lords of the Pale rebels for refusing to trust their persons within the walls of Dublin, Coote was employed during January to destroy swords, their place of rendezvous, and to ravage the estates of their adherents in that neighbourhood. In the same month eleven hundred veterans arrived at Dublin under Sir Simon Harcourt. Early in February arrived Sir Richard Grenville with four hundred horse, and soon after Lieutenant Colonel George Mugg, afterwards Duke of Albemarle, with Lord Leicester's regiment, fifteen hundred strong. Up to this period Ormond had been restrained by the justices, who were as timid as they were cruel, to operations within an easy march of Dublin. He had driven the O'Moores and their allies out of Nas, he had reinforced some garrisons in Kildare, he had broken up, though not without much loss, an entrenched camp of the O'Burns at Kilsalgan Wood, on the borders of Dublin. At last the justices felt secure enough, at the beginning of March, to allow him to march to the relief of Drogheda. Sir Phelim O'Neill had invested the place for more than three months, had been twice repulsed from its walls, made a last desperate attempt, towards the end of February, but with no better success. After many lives were lost, the impetuous lawyer-soldier was obliged to retire, and on the 8th of March, hearing of Ormond's approach at the head of four thousand fresh troops, he hastily retreated northward. On receiving this report, the justices recalled Ormond to the capital. Sir Henry Tichburn and Lord Moore were dispatched with a strong force, on the rear of the Ulster forces, and drove them out of Ardee and Dundalk, the latter after a sharp action. The march of Ormond into Meath had, however, been productive of offers of submission from many of the gentry of the Pale, who attended the meetings at Crofty and Tara. Lord Dunsany and Sir John Netterville actually surrendered on the Earl's guarantee, and were sent to Dublin. Lords Gormanston, Netterville, and Slane offered by letter to follow their example, but the two former were, on reaching the city, thrust into the dungeons of the castle, by order of the justices, and the proposals of the latter were rejected with contumely. About the same time the Long Parliament passed an act declaring two million five hundred thousand acres of the property of Irish recusants forfeited to the State, and guaranteeing to all English adventurers, contributing to the expenses of the war, and all soldiers serving in it, grants of land in proportion to their service and contribution. This act, and a letter from Lord Essex, the Parliamentarian Commander-in-Chief, recommending the transportation of captured recusants to the West Indian colonies, effectually put a stop to these negotiations. In Ulster, by the end of April, there were nineteen thousand troops, regulars and volunteers, in the garrison or in the field. 
Newry was taken by Monroe and Chichester, where eighty men and women and two priests were put to death. McGinnis was obliged to abandon Down, and McMahon Monaghan, Sir Philem was driven to burn Armagh and Dungannon, and to take his last stand at Charlemont. In a severe action with Sir Robert and Sir William Stuart, he had displayed his usual courage with better than his usual fortune, which, perhaps, we may attribute to the presence with him of Sir Alexander Macdonnell, brother to Lord Antrim, the famous Colkiddo of the Irish and Scottish wars. But the severest defeat which the Confederates had was in the heart of Leinster, at the hamlet of Kilrush, within four miles of Athy. Lord Ormond, returning from a second reinforcement of Nass and other Kildare forts, at the head by English account of four thousand men, found on the thirteenth of April the Catholics of the Midland counties, under Lords Montgarrett, Ickerin, and Dunboyne, Sir Morgan Cavanaugh, Rory O'More, and Hugh O'Byrne, drawn up by his report eight thousand strong to dispute his passage. With Ormond were the Lord Dillon, Lord Brabazon, Sir Richard Grenville, Sir Charles Coote, and Sir T. Lucas. The combat was short but murderous. The Confederates left seven hundred men, including Sir Morgan Cavanaugh, and some other officers, dead on the field. The remainder retreated in order, and Ormond, with an inconsiderable diminution of numbers, returned in triumph to Dublin. For this victory the long Parliament, in a moment of enthusiasm, voted the lieutenant-general a jewel worth five hundred pounds. If any satisfaction could be derived from such an incident, the violent death of their most ruthless enemy, Sir Charles Coote, might have afforded the Catholics some consolation. That merciless saberer, after the combat at Kilrush, had been employed in reinforcing Beer, and relieving the castle of Gishel, which the Lady Letitia of Offaly held against the neighbouring tribe of O'Dempsey. On his return from this service he made a foray against a Catholic force, which had mustered in the neighbourhood of Trim. Here, on the night of the 7th of May, heading a sally of his troop, he fell by a musket-shot, not without suspicion of being fired from his own ranks. His son and namesake, who imitated him in all things, was ennobled at the Restoration by the title of the Earl of Montrath. In Munster, the President St. Ledger, though lately reinforced by one thousand men from England, did not consider himself strong enough for other than occasional forays into the neighbouring county, and little was effected in that province. Such was the condition of affairs at home and abroad when the National Synod assembled at Kilkenny. As the most popular tribunal invested with the highest moral power in the kingdom, it was their arduous task to establish order and authority among the chaotic elements of the revolution. By the admission of those most opposed to them, they conducted their deliberations for nearly three weeks with equal prudence and energy. The first, on the motion of the venerable Bishop Roth, framed an oath of association to be publicly taken by all their adherents by the first part of which they were bound to bear true faith and allegiance to King Charles and his lawful successors, to maintain the fundamental laws of Ireland, the free exercise of the Roman Catholic faith and religion. By the second part of this oath, all Confederate Catholics, for so they were to be called, as solemnly bound themselves never to accept or submit to any peace, without the consent and approbation of the General Assembly of the said Confederate Catholics." They then proceeded to make certain constitutions, declaring the war just and lawful, condemning emulations and distinctions founded on distinctions of race, such as new and old Irish, ordaining an elective council for each province, and a supreme or national council for the whole kingdom, condemning as excommunicate all who should, having taken the oath, violate it, or who should be guilty of murder, violence to persons, or plunder under pretense of the war. 
Although the attendance of the lay leaders of the movement at Kilkenny was far from general, the exigencies of the case compelled them to nominate, with the concurrence of the bishops, the first supreme council of which Lord Mountgarrett was chosen president, and Mr. Richard Belling, an accomplished writer and lawyer, secretary. By this body a general assembly of the entire nation was summoned to meet at the same city, on the 23rd of October following, the anniversary of the Ulster Rising, commonly called by the English party Lord Maguire's Day. The choice of such an occasion by men of Mount Garrett's and Selling's moderation and judgment, six months after the date of the alleged massacre, would form another proof, if any were now needed, that none of the alleged atrocities were yet associated with the memory of that particular day. The events of the five months, which intervened between the adjournment of the National Synod at the end of May, and the meeting of the General Assembly on the 23rd of October, may be best summed up under the head of the respective provinces. 1. The oath of confederation was taken with enthusiasm in Munster, a provincial council elected, and General Barry chosen commander-in-chief. Barry made an attempt upon Cork, which was repulsed, but a few days later the not less important city of Limerick opened its gates to the Confederates, and on the 21st of June the citadel was breached and surrendered by Courtenay, the governor. On the 2nd of July St. Ledger died at Cork, it was said of vexation for the loss of Limerick, and the command devolved on his son-in-law, Lord Itchikin, a pupil of the school of wards, and a soldier of the school of Sir Charles Coote. With Itchikin was associated the Earl of Barrymore for the civil administration, but on Barrymore's death in September, both powers remained for twelve months in the hands of the survivor. The gain of Limerick was followed by the taking of Lochgar and Askeaton, but was counterbalanced by the defeat of Liscarroll, when the Irish loss was eight hundred men, with several colours. Itchikin reported only twenty killed, including the young Lord Kenelmiki, one of the five sons whom the Earl of Court gave to this war. 2. In Connaught, Lord Clanricarde was still enabled to avert a general outbreak. In vain the western prelates besought him in a pathetic remonstrance to place himself at the head of its injured inhabitants, and take the command of the province. He continued to play a middle part between the President, Lord Ranlaw, Sir Charles Coote the Younger, and Willoughby, Governor of Galway, until the popular impatience burst all control. The chief of the O'Flaherty's seized Clanricard's castle, of Augrenur, and the young men of Galway, with a skill and decision quite equal to that of the dairy apprentices of an after-day, seized an English ship containing arms and supplies, lying in the bay, marched to the church of St. Nicholas, took the confederate oath, and shut Willoughby up in the citadel. Clan Ricard hastened to extinguish this spark of resistance, and induced the townsmen to capitulate on his personal guarantee. But Willoughby, on the arrival of reinforcements under the fanatical Lord Forbes, at once set the truce made by Clan Ricard at defiance, burned the suburbs, sacked the churches, and during August and September, exercised a reign of terror in the town. About the same time local risings took place in Sligo, Mayo, and Roscommon, at first with such success that the president of the province, Lord Ranlaugh, shut himself up in the castle of Athlone, where he was closely besieged. 3. In Leinster, no military movement of much importance was made, in consequence of the jealousy the justices entertained of Ormond, and the emptiness of the treasury. In June, the long Parliament remitted over the paltry sum of eleven thousand five hundred pounds to the justices, and two thousand of the troops, which had all but mutinied for their pay, were dispatched under Ormond to the relief of Athlone. Commissioners arrived during the summer, appointed by the Parliament to report on the affairs of Ireland, 
to whom the justices submitted a penal code worthy of the brain of Draco or Domitian. Ormond was raised to the rank of Marquise by the king, while the army he commanded grew more and more divided, by intrigues emanating from the castle and beyond the channel. Before the month of October, James Touchet, Earl of Castlehaven, an adventurous nobleman, possessed of large estates both in Ireland and England, effected his escape from Dublin Castle, where he had been imprisoned on suspicion by Parsons and Borlaes, and joined the Confederation at Kilkenny. In September, Colonel Thomas Preston, the brave defender of Leuven, uncle to Lord Gormanston, landed at Wexford, with three frigates and several transports, containing a few siege-guns, field-pieces, and other stores, five hundred officers, and a number of engineers. 4. In Ulster, where the first blow was struck, and the first hopes were excited, the prospect had become suddenly overclouded. Monroe took Dunluce from Lord Antrim by the same stratagem by which Sir Philem took Charlemont, inviting himself as a guest, and arresting his host at his own table. A want of cordial cooperation between the Scotch commander and the undertakers alone prevented them extinguishing, in one vigorous campaign, the northern insurrection. So weak and disorganized were now the thousands who had risen at a bound one short year before, that the garrisons of Inniskellen, Denny, Newry, and Drogheda, scoured almost unopposed the neighboring counties. The troops of Cole, Hamilton, the Stuarts, Chichesters, and Conways found little opposition, and gave no quarter. Sir William Cole, among his claims of service rendered to the state, enumerated seven thousand of the rebels famished to death, within a circuit of a few miles from Inniskillen. The disheartened and disorganized natives were seriously deliberating a wholesale emigration to the Scottish Highlands, when a word of magic effect was whispered from sea-coast to the interior. On the 6th of July, Colonel Owen Rowe O'Neill arrived off Donegal with a single ship, a single company of veterans, one hundred officers, and a considerable quantity of ammunition. He landed at Doe Castle, and was escorted by his kinsman, Sir Philem, to the fort of Charlemont. A general meeting of the northern clans was quickly called at Clones, in Monaghan, and there, on an early day after his arrival, Owen O'Neill was elected general-in-chief of the Catholic Army of the North, Sir Philem resigning in his favour, and taking instead the barren title of President of Ulster. At the same moment Lord Laven arrived from Scotland with the remainder of the ten thousand voted by the Parliament of that kingdom. He had known O'Neill abroad, had a high opinion of his abilities, and wrote to express his surprise, that a man of his reputation should be engaged in so bad a cause, to which O'Neill replied that he had a better right to come to the relief of his own country than his lordship had to march into England against his lawful king. Levin, before returning home, urged Monroe to act with promptitude, for that he might expect a severe lesson if the new commander once succeeded in collecting an army. But Monroe proved deaf to this advice, and while the Scottish and English forces in the province would have amounted, if united, to twenty thousand foot and one thousand horse, they gave O'Neill time enough to embody, officer, drill, and arm, at least provisionally, a force not to be despised by even twice their numbers. End of chapter 5 Read by Sibella Denton For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.